Welcome back to another episode of the Casey Campbell podcast. Casey Campbell with you, of course. We're pleased to be joined by Ricky Taylor of Wayne Taylor Racing. Sounds good to say. Uh, driving the number 10 Konica Minolta Acura um, with Felipe Albuquerque as his, uh, as his co-driver. How's it going? Good. Thanks, Casey. Yeah, it sounds good to hear uh, back with Wayne Taylor Racing. Uh, it was a great few years with Penske. And learned a lot and had a great, great time there and loved the team. But yeah, it's, uh, it's quite, uh, it's quite nice to be back with the family. Well, um, you came back and you brought Acura with you. Um, of course, you guys, uh, you and Elio won the championship last year. Um, you know, what, what has it been like, you know, being back I, and, and just, you know, doing all the, and just being yeah. back? It's, it's one thing to uh, the first time around of, um, you know, leaving, leaving the family team uh, after a really great year in 2017 and going to experience something completely new with, with Accurate Team Penske. And then, um, and then now coming back under a whole different set of circumstances, like as you said, uh, coming back with Acura, um, I think it was a really big, a big step for Winter Racing to branch out outside of the GM family and take on a new manufacturer, not a new, manu- a new manufacturer to them in Acura. And uh, they they can see immediately what a great partner Acura is, and uh, I feel really lucky to be associated with such a great brand. And uh, to combine those two great relationships, obviously my family side with with Acura and HPD, it's been it's been really fun. Um, it's been nice that you know as a driver you're always uh, you're always wanting to have some input and have some uh, some influence in how the team is kind of headed in, in what direction and, and whatnot. And um, this year, being the experienced guy with the car, uh, finally I got the engineer's ear a little bit more and uh, the, the team's kind of looking to me for a bit more direction. Um, obviously, Philippe comes with a ton of experience as well. Uh, um, Alex Rossi and Eli Cashnevis came with the same experience as me. So we got the season off to a great start in that way. And I feel like the team is, is really gelling with the car. Yeah, the seven team turned into the 10 team and then the uh, six team literally turned into the 60 for uh, a <laughs> It's funny how those things work. But anyway, you guys uh, rack up another Rolex 24, the third straight year in a row that you guys have done that. Uh, yeah, third third straight, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, third straight for the team. Third straight for Wayne Taylor Racing. I, yeah. I, I knew I got something right. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I, I would love to say that it was all because of you know the drivers and blah blah blah, but clearly the team is the is the heroes for, for the Rolex 24. They got they've got it pretty well figured out. Uh what was it like, you know, to win another to, to win another Rolex? It was great. I think for the team uh on the way to the racing side, this was probably one of the best Rolex 24 wins that they've had. Um obviously it's only my second. Um, but for the team uh to do it. As many times as they did it with the Cadillac uh, DPI was was great, but that was such a proven car at Daytona, and it's won the 24 hours so many times. And um, to take on a new car in their first event with that new car um, to kind of unseat Cadillac of of their you know Rolex 24 throne, um, I think was was a big shock to the racing world, and uh, just goes to show what a solid team uh, Wayne Taylor Racing has become. And, how, uh, what a force they are kind of in endurance racing in these big marquee events. 
You know, when you look at, you have another endurance race coming up this weekend, you have the 12 hours of Sebring, you have, of course, you and Philippe, the, uh, the two, the two drivers that will drive the 10 all season long. And then you also have Alexander Rossi uh, with you guys as well. Um, of course, you know, between the three of you, just kind of talk about, you know, running the, the 12 hours because it seems like we just were there uh, just a months ago. Yeah, we were just there. Um, and we, we had a, a bit of a rough race. It was a rough race for everybody, actually. Um, a, a lot of a lot of mayhem. And ultimately, we got a little lucky in how we won the championship in that event after having some, some technical issues early in the race and the 10 car having having issues of their own on track. And then the 31 also having issues on track. And um, so it just goes to show how the 12 hours is so, such a dramatic event. And you can never predict what's going to happen there. Um, everybody always says it's almost a cliche that, you know, the bumps cause so much action and, and, uh, and you know, it never disappoints. And so this year, going back to it, obviously we're, we have a you know, good bit of momentum coming in. Uh, we get the, the number one pit stall pit out, uh, which is always a strategic advantage. Um, as far as the race goes, um, but it's a complete reset when you get to the racetrack. It's there's no such thing as you know you can carry that over from Daytona. Once we get to the racetrack and unload, uh, we're gonna have to beat them uh, just as we we did in Daytona. And uh, the Cadillacs are always strong in in Sebring, and that's another place where they've kind of dominated until until last year when the Mazda won. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say it's gonna be it's gonna be a really really tough event. You know, when we look at IMSA this year, because, you know, with the with the DPI class being, you know, with the Acuras, you have, you know, the Cadillacs as well as um, as well as the Mazdas, as well as the Mazda. It, it, it's a pretty deep field when you have and then you bring in, you know, Meyer Shank is back. Ganassi is back. Yeah. Um, it, it, I can't remember maybe a few years ago, but. I can't remember a class just so deep in, in the DPI category. Yeah, I mean, the car count isn't so high. Like, there aren't a ton of cars. Right. But really, every car is stacked. Mazda consolidated the one car, but that one car took two of the best guys out of out of each car and put them together and, and then consolidated all the best mechanics, best engineers. So that's a stronger car. Um, Ganassi coming in, you're never going to be able to discount them. They're... Um, I think was it six or seven time Grand Am Insta champion. Yeah. Uh, and you know, they're never gonna be able to count them out with the proven package and great driver lineup. And everybody's just so strong that uh the races are gonna be unrelenting all year. I think uh anytime you 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 know release the pressure a little bit, somebody's gonna be there to uh to overtake you and it's gonna be it's gonna be intense. I think I think for 12 hours we're already talking about how important qualifying is, which sounds ridiculous. It's, six cars in a 12-hour race, seven cars in a 12-hour race. But, um, yeah, it, it's you, you can't really give up anything at any time. So, you know, for people that don't know sports car racing and, you know, as the series gets popular, when you talk about endurance racing, how often between, for you, Philippe, and Alex, between the three of you guys, how long are you going to spend in the car? So, yeah, I mean, uh, we've actually just had our strategy meeting on Friday and um, there's a couple of different kind of uh, approaches we have. We have sort of the car feels good. Everybody's comfortable in the car. It's easy to drive and 
And, you know, in that situation, we, we're going to do, you know, three stints at a time, maybe four, which is, you know, getting close to two hours, uh, two, two and a half hours in the car. Uh, but that's at most at a time. Uh, but more than likely with how intense the race goes, it's a bit more taxing on the drivers. So we'll probably do about two to three stints each time. So hour and 15, maximum two hours. And then you're out of the car for, you know, two and a half hours, maybe three hours at best. And, and then you're right back in. So, I mean, if you split it evenly, if you assume that we all do the same amount, it's four hours each. But uh, the, the tough thing coming to Sebring versus Daytona, Daytona, you can drive for a long time and give your teammates rest with four drivers. Um, but here in Sebring, the stint lengths can be so short because it's so physically demanding that each each rest that you get is also shorter. So it keeps adding up through the race. And um, I think it comes down to how fresh you can be uh, in those final few stints to, to kind of go for the win. Um, so kind of like when you, when you talk about like kind of like driver changes and all that, how have you been getting better at that over the years? Yeah, everybody kind of has their own way of doing it. Honestly, the drivers have the easy part in the driver change process. Some teams put more responsibility on the drivers and some we have a helper. So some will have more responsibility on the helper. Um, but the cars, the, the prototype class cars nowadays are, the cockpits are really small and uh, you still have, you know, the full, full uh, six, five point uh, belts and everything. And uh, so it's about, you know, un unhooking all those. We don't have a helmet blower anymore, but getting out of the car, getting the other guy back in. And really the hardest work is for the for the belt the belt guy, the helper, because he has to plug all those things in as we're kind of flailing around in there and uh, and then make sure he gets the door closed and everything. But over the years, you kind of learn what's, what works for you and you learn little tips and tricks here and there. And, you know, the order of what you do things is really important. And honestly, just practicing. Uh, when we first started with this car, we couldn't break 30 seconds. And by the end of, by the end of the season in 2020, you know, we were doing a driver change in 14 seconds and that's just practice. It's almost the same process, but just practice and practice and practice. So what's it like going around? Like, you know, we always see in, in multi-class racing because if people don't watch IMSA regularly, there's all these multi classes of cars. Cause you have, you have GTD cars, you have GTLM, you have, and then you have the LMP2, and then this year, the LMP3. Um, what's it like, especially getting around GT traffic? How, like, what is that like for you on, on the race, during the race? Yeah, as you said, there's five different classes of cars. I think, luckily, we're in the fastest class of, the car, class of cars. We actually have it the easiest. Um, but for us, uh, in, the, in some of the other classes, in the GTB and the LMP3 and LMP2, they have pro-am lineups. So they have a professional driver and an amateur driver in the car. And when the professional driver is in the car, you can dive bomb him. You can you know, trust that he, he knows where you are at all times. You can pass him in maybe some um, not very regular passing areas, and, and you can be pretty relatively safe. Um, but the risk comes when there's amateurs in the car and they're focused on going as fast as they can, not crashing. Um, and they're, they're most of the time, 90% of the time they're looking straight ahead and, and they don't have any awareness of what's going on behind or, 
or next to them sometimes. And so those are the guys you really have to take care of. And in the sprint races, it's easy because you know the amateur driver is going to start and then the professional is going to finish. So you know who's in the car at all times. But at the 12-hour and, and for Daytona and for some of the long races, you lose track of that. And then you don't know if it's a pro or an am or where they're going to break or whether they see you or not. And so it's a lot of trust and really making sure you don't hesitate and making sure your car is well alongside so they can see you. Um, but uh, for them, I mean, you have to think of both sides. They're driving a much heavier, uh, less downforce uh, car that does not handle very well. And so for them, they're, they're hanging on. They're on the ragged edge at all times. And um, when we just put the car somewhere, it could really unsettle their car. Um, so you kind of have to consider that as well. They're watching their mirrors, they're looking ahead, they're racing their own deal, and they have a lot more going on than we do. So it, it's difficult on both ends. What's it going to take to get another win at Seabury? I think, you know, over the past three years, um, we never, with with the ARX05, we never made it, you know, to the end of the race unscathed, at least in the seven car we did it. And, you know, the key to Seabury, you got to be there at the end. And I think, We've had the pace. Uh, we tested there a few weeks ago, and uh, the car is especially very good at night. And it's such a shame that that we haven't been, you know, fighting for a win in those conditions because I feel like we really could have a chance. And so for us, the the key to winning is going to be uh, that we have to be in a in contention in the top three. I'd say um, if we're if we're a lap down, we have no chance. So we we have to survive. Um, but also maintaining that track position because, as we've talked about earlier, uh, it's so difficult to overtake and it's so competitive with the, with this tight field that we're going to have to position ourselves in the top three, two, three hours to go. We should, we should have a chance. Yeah. All right. Ricky Taylor, thank you so much for spending some time um, uh, with us. And uh, good luck this weekend at the 12 Hours of Seabird. Cool. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for having me on. No problem.